<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and welcome to The Great America Show. We've had ourselves some week, haven't we? And all because of a big old Chinese balloon floating across the United States. As you listen to those news reports, you had to be as surprised as I was. A spy balloon? Really? Who uses balloons in the 21st century? Didn't they go out with World War II and the London Blitz? Well, no, they didn't. In fact, the U.S. military used them in Afghanistan and Iraq for surveillance and intelligence. And there was a time when we actually policed our southern border with Mexico, and part of that effort was to secure the border, and it included flying surveillance balloons over the border, fighting illegal immigration and the Mexican cartels, smuggling fentanyl and other deadly drugs and sex trafficking into the United States. Now, no problem. There's no interference from this pro-cartel Biden regime. Some folks may have been thinking back to 1947 when space aliens landed in Roswell, New Mexico. At least those were the so-called initial reports. But it turned out that the crashed UFO was only a downed high-altitude weather balloon. At least that was the government's story. So when I heard that it was a Chinese weather balloon, I thought maybe the government was resurrecting the old Roswell disinformation stratagem trying out a variation on the Roswell incident, it worked so well, claiming the UFO was a weather balloon again. But really what we had was, here come the aliens. No, I'm just kidding, friends, no aliens. Just the Chinese testing U.S. defenses and the Pentagon's decision-making, and in so doing, making laughing stocks out of the bunch of them, along with the impaired commander-in-chief, of course. Neither the generals nor China Joe Biden passed any of the tests. Slow-witted, few options, no ingenious and clever national defense response. No. Instead, along that week-long balloon passage over top-secret missile defense systems, Air Force bases, and critical infrastructure, General Milley and puppet President China Joe Biden employed the old maybe-it'll-just-go-away-and-no-one-will-notice strategy. That didn't work when everybody in Montana with an iPhone or whatever started taking pictures of that balloon floating by at an altitude of about 11 miles up. Some nice pictures, by the way. But there went the Biden-Millie see-nothing-say-nothing strategy. And the Biden-tough-guy act looked like an act. First reports in the New York Times that Biden chose not to shoot it down then that he ordered the military to shoot it down, but the generals decided, wait, just wait a few days to execute the president's order, and we'll shoot it down off the coast of South Carolina. Some president, right? First reports were they would use 20-millimeter cannon fire on the balloon. That would make smaller holes. That would let less helium out of the balloon. And that made a lot of sense to keep the balloon more intact it would make for a slower descent for the surveillance gear and arrays that were the payload beneath the balloon. So what did they do? 
somehow what occurred was quite different. It was almost as if the Pentagon decided they or someone else didn't want a slow descent, didn't want to capture the payload as undamaged as possible for some reason. And so off the Carolina coast, an F-22 pilot fired a Sidewinder missile from 58,000 feet up and hit his target, which thereby created a huge debris field, a seven-mile area in water 47 feet deep, making for quite a search effort, especially with Navy salvage ships still several days away from the recovery area. You say this doesn't make sense to watch as the surveillance balloon traversed the United States for a full week, that the military could have shot it down in lots of remote areas, and with a week to react, didn't think to have salvage ships and crews on station. And you're right. It's clear to me, at least, that the military and the White House would never have said a word if civilians hadn't spotted it, that China Joe Biden didn't want to shoot it down, and the military didn't have many options about what to do. Shooting a balloon down with a missile? Are you kidding me? Was that really the best way to preserve surveillance gear and arrays? The best way for the gear to survive the downing? And then there's the rest of the official narrative, including the president's and the Pentagon's super hyperbolic kudos to the pilot of the world's most advanced fighter jet, the F-22, for firing a missile at what can only be described as a defenseless, slow-moving, cargo-laden surveillance balloon. Would the pilot be equally regaled if he had blown up a few semi-trucks abandoned in the desert? What's that all about? Are they going to make him like an ace of surveillance balloons? And what's the deal with General Pat Ryder? A little Pentagon spokesman attitude from the general when he brushed aside a reporter's question on the public's right to know where that China balloon was at the moment, saying, quote, the public certainly has the ability to look up in the sky and see where the balloon is. Whoa, General, you may not have noticed, but most Americans aren't too thrilled with our government of late, lying to us day in and day out, and just a little more arrogance from the Biden propaganda unit isn't particularly helpful. Or is it? We'll see. When it comes to disinformation and propaganda, no one does it any better or in any greater volume than the Biden White House. Running campaigns of misinformation and disinformation and psychological operations against the American people almost nonstop, not only trying to manage the news and create political outcomes of all sorts, including elections, of course. The dominant question is, who's really driving the White House agenda? Most say it can't be the president himself. He's often simply unintelligible. He can't find his ways across the stage and can barely walk. He's only at the White House a few days a week, at his vacation homes more than half the week. Some say a Marxist dim cabal is actually running the Biden regime. Some claim it's Barack Obama and his former top officials from his administration. And many others truly believe that multi-billionaire George Soros is the man pulling all the strings, who has insinuated his radical Marxist policies into not only the White House, but every part of the federal government. Soros is, after all, the biggest donor to the Democrats. He's the man whose influence has made him the Republicans' evil avatar for the Marxist Dems and their mad anti-American policies. Soros's billions have bought not only influence on Wall Street and corporate America, but true power over our government. Our guest today is author Matt Palumbo. 
Matt has written the essential Soros book, entitled The Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros. Matt is not only a prolific writer, but also content director for the Bongino Report. Matt, great to have you with us. Congratulations on the resurgence of your book a year after publication, atop the Amazon charts once again. A rare feat. How does it feel? Yeah, it's been a very pleasant surprise. You know, the, the book, um, you know, Phasm T is already the man behind the curtain inside the secret network of George Soros uh, came out uh, back in 20, geez, 2022. Um, so it's been just over a full year. And, you know, it did well the first, you know, two to three months. And that's how most books go. You get a month of life and then it treads water. And we were just sort of, you know, treading water for the past couple of months or, you know, actually, unfortunately, better half of uh, a year. And then out of nowhere, the Epoch Times uh, publishes a full interview they did with me about a year ago. Uh, that starts blowing up. And then I get a call from the New York Post and they kind of wanted a uh, five part series based on the book. So I was just sort of taking the best parts of every chapter and making it article format. And, you know, I woke up to a very pleasant surprise after submitting them. They didn't tell me they were going to make it the, the cover story and advertise uh, then that, you know, stay tuned the whole week. But uh, I wake up to all these text messages of, oh, my God, I can't believe you're on the cover of the post from people I didn't even know read the post. So uh, it was a very nice surprise. And then Fox started having me on. Um, and, you know, as we recall on Fox, even I think it was post-election, Newt Gingrich brought up. Um, so some of the Soros DAs and got shut down and they just had me on, I think, five or six times to talk about them. So uh, there was some change there, which is obviously for the better. And I'm, you know, I'm glad it's finally getting the attention that I think it deserves. Yeah, there, there's been obviously a yeah. sea change at Fox uh, on the issue of George Soros uh, and on the part of Rupert Murdoch, obviously. Well, uh, the Murdoch's I, owning, of course, the New York Post as well as Fox. I noticed, actually, it's funny, if you go on the videos on YouTube of my recent appearances, and I was just there, there are a bunch of bring back Lou Dobbs comments that are all thumbed up. So we've got a lot of supporters <laughs> there. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thanks, everybody, for those thumbs up. Uh, and uh, I, I, I want to turn to George Soros. It's it's strange to even be laughing when his name is mentioned. There, And to the point, there was a time at Fox uh, where people were blackballed uh, as guests or contributors for even mentioning uh, his name. That's how serious it was. Uh, and I think the fact that you're you're reporting on this extensively, uh, written your book, uh, it, it is really a, a question uh, for, that I have in the, in my at the forefront of my mind is, is this really the ebb, the ebb tide for? George Soros, because there was a time when literally whispering his name on air created convulsions throughout news organizations. That's obviously dissipated. Your thoughts? I mean, it, it's weird because I, I feel like it actually is happening, but the question of why uh, is unanswered. Because, there, I mean, there was at Fox, there was different eras where I think Glenn Beck back in 2010 very extensively covered him. Um, and even went through that, and we'll probably talk about it in the interview, the infamous you know, Nazi 60 Minutes interview. Beck covered all of that and didn't really have any problems. I mean, I know Soros attacked him. Actually, Beck told me Soros went after him and sent, you know, had people make harassing phone calls. But Fox was all right with that. And I guess there was that period with you know, the, the aforementioned Faulkner Gingrich thing. And, and now we're coming back. So I'm not really sure what the uh, change is. But the one thing we should keep in mind is, you know, Soros is 92 years old. So he... 
I mean, I look at the stats, he's probably statistically got three or four years of life left. So it's going to be the tide is finally turning, but now we got to look at the next guy, and that's Alexander Soros. And he's sort of, you know, a Soros ambassador for a Soros. Um, you go on the guy's Instagram page, and it is a who's who of famous Democrats, pundits, uh, etc. And it seems like he is really being primed to take over the empire. In fact, he's already on the board of the Open Society Foundations. He's on the board of Central European University, which is a college that his father started. So he's really the most ingrained in his father's network. Um, and is just really all over the world, these little places like, you know, the Balkans meddling and stuff out of nowhere. So I, I think a lot of the Soros' work has sort of been outsourced to his children um, at this point. Um, though it's obviously impossible for me to prove, but it, it does seem like... Or actually, I'll just step back a second, too. Another point I make in the book is Soros was responsible for what is, I mean, it is technically the greatest charitable contribution of all time, but there's obviously quotation marks among charitable. Uh, basically, he just took billions of dollars of his own money. I think it was, I have the exact number of the book, it's around 20 billion, donated it to his own foundation. So he paid no capital gains tax on the stock he donated, then gets to write off, you know, the, the donation against his personal income. But then also his foundation has all these billions and the amount he donated, I found it was comparable to what it's spent since its inception, which only tells you if you're donating that much money this late in life, well, clearly you think it's going to live on beyond you. Um, he's very much positioning his organization to do that. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't count him out here because I get the I get an image of him as, you know, the uh, the, the cinematic evil uh, multi-billionaire. Uh, he's probably putting together the secrets to uh, to 200 years and wiring himself up to every tube and electrode there is uh, to uh, to <laughs> gain another 50, 60 years. Who knows? Yeah, from beyond the grave. And oh, the yeah. thing, the thing too, about his influence that I make, and a point that I make is like, I mean, yes, he has direct influence and that he can call and email politicians and get what he wants. But there's also sort of the implied contract in that when you give an organization billions of dollars or millions of dollars even, especially if it's a media organization, um, Soros doesn't have to tell them, hey, FYI, you know, don't cover anything negative about me. They, they, they you know, they already, they, they, well, they already know that. And all these groups he's funding now while he's alive presumably are going to still get funded after his death and are going to have the same uh, from beyond the grave influence he had beforehand. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, uh, is there anything that is that was so volatile, uh, so dark that you decided not to uh, to include that in your book and your write, uh, reporting? Uh, no, no, I, I put everything I could. The only thing I would exclude was if I just thought it was like esoteric and boring. Um, but that's really it. No, I mean, I think the most damning story I put and part of the motivation to write the book was you know sort of I, as a peripheral figure I, I knew he was a bad guy i knew he was funding liberal you know policies and really in any comment section you see someone blaming whatever liberal thing going on on soros and i had come across things i knew were true i had come across things that i thought were hyperbole and i, I kind of started to realize like even um even the most outlandish sounding conspiracy theories were sort of directionally correct. So when someone says, you know, in a comment section, Soros was a Nazi who worked for Hitler, that's not literally true, but it is true when he was a teenager, Nazi, the Nazis occupied Hungary. Um, he was given a job by them to hand out deportation notices and summons to Jewish families. Um, and he went along happily with it. And, you know, if you and I were put in that situation, 
Um, obviously, there's the whole gun to your head element. Um, but Soros was very famously or infamously asked about this this during a 60 Minutes interview with Steve Croft. And mm -hmm. Croft tries to give him the exact out I just said of the, okay, but obviously there's a gun to your head. These are evil people. You did what you have to do. And rather than say, well, of course, and I feel horrible, Soros's response was, well, no, I did it because I had to. And if I didn't, someone else would have. Uh, there was no remorse at all. Now, uh, in the book, I document all these cases from Soros's writing where he sort of is self-aware that he is narcissistic and sociopathic. Um, but this is one of those cases where the, the, the you know, crack in the facade has been revealed, and he actually has tried to walk it back. And if you look for sort of a mainstream media, like outside of conservative media, opinion on this interview, they try to spin it in his favor, and they'll say it's misquoted. And so, you know, of course, in the book, I have to disprove that. So I have the full transcript. Uh, but sort of the smoking gun in that encounter, or in, in proving that, the narrative he gave in 60 minutes of feeling no remorse is true is Soros's father penned an autobiography. And in it, he talks about his son George's upbringing and talks about that exact incident uh, and recalls it as a job his son enjoyed doing. Um, another thing about Soros, too, during the Nazi occupation, um, his father, he had the, what he called his, his protector. Uh, his father assigned someone with him for George to live with. Um, Soros has never in his life named who this person was who presumably saved his life by saving him from the Nazis. Uh, and we didn't even find out his name until the Daily Mail revealed it many years after his death. Uh, so that's just the kind of guy Soros is. And you can take a hyperbolic claim of, of Soros as a Nazi and a fact checker could say it's objectively true. But you go through the rabbit hole and it's really not much better. So that's just kind of a point I make is even the hyperbole, you go down that and it's a rabbit hole that leads you to something not equally disturbing, but pretty disturbing, I'd say. There's a lot about uh, mm -hmm. George Soros that is disturbing uh, in his politics, his ideology uh, and his capacity, his awesome capacity through his billions of dollars to influence change on one level or to manipulate the entire political system, it seems. Uh, with all of that vast wealth uh, that he possesses. As you say, the uh, the the Open Society Foundation, $18 billion uh, there. Uh, he's been funding it for years. Uh, they are involved in everything from uh, illegal immigration uh, to the election, as you document uh, so ter terrifically, uh, the DAs that are progressive beyond Marxist uh, in terms of their approach uh, to law enforcement, uh, law and, uh, if you will, uh, punishment. Your thoughts on that that part of his character and his enterprise uh, and his motivation? Right. So when it comes to the motives, you know, I think that's just what proves it's evil because you know, there's a lot of political discussion. Like, if we were to debate an issue like, I don't know, should we fund a local library more? You know, it's not really a moral issue. It's a question of, okay, here's the pros and cons, and we can have an honest and open debate. When it comes to things like the, you know, the DAs, there's just, there's no counter argument. You know, I've gone through all the, all the data, and in every single one of these cities that is a Soros-backed DA, crime goes up. And even if it's in a year where crime went up nationally, it goes up more in those cities and they will try to spin it by saying if they try to spin it at all by saying like, well, we're focusing too much on, you know, uh, enforcing laws against graffiti and parking tickets. Why aren't we fighting murder and rape? And, you know, if that was a legal theory of, hey, we'll stop enforcing lower level things to focus on higher level things, 
that's not happening because there's not one of these cities, one of these DAs who says they're going to do that, that actually does it. What they do is they stop enforcing lower level crimes and higher level crimes. In fact, one of the women who I talked about in one of the Post articles, uh, Buddha Bibaraj, she's the Commonwealth attorney uh, for Luton County. And she recently came out with, with these uh, various policies she wasn't going to enforce and used the exact line of, you know, why enforce speeding tickets when we could go after, you know, sexual assault victims. And, and the irony is she, under her tenure, her first year in office, dismissed 92% of sexual assault cases and her office actually got reduced funding because she wasn't doing enough to fight them. So, the, you know, the, she had the funding and lost it because she wasn't enforcing the law and then is going to enforce the law less to claim she's going to enforce the law that she just lost funding for not enforcing, which is, I know, a mouthful. Um, but these are the people we're dealing with. And in the chapter in the book, it's I just sort of give a rundown of here's who they are. Here's how much, you know, here's the public statements they were making, which I think are relevant because it shows what attracts Soros. And they are people who are clearly so insane that Soros wouldn't even have to tell them what to do. You can just tell by their philosophy that, you know, they, they talk about criminals in a way where criminals are the only true victims, that if you commit a crime, certainly there must have been something in your life where something went wrong or society in some way failed you. And it is a philosophy that just generates more criminals over and over and over. And we're seeing that in quite literally every Soros-backed city. The only data point in their favor is, and this is sort of another irony, is there are some Soros back cities where there are Soros-backed DAs where crimes like shoplifting are going down, yet we, you know, on paper, yet we see a record number of stores closing doing the shoplifting. We see the cost to insure these businesses going up. So how is that possible? Well, it was the case under Chase Abudin. If you steal less than I think it was a thousand dollars or so, you don't get charged. So if you're a business owner and someone takes 500 bucks, uh, if you call the police to report it, you're just costing yourself a half hour of time because nothing's going to happen. So there are certain crimes that have effectively been legalized and now that they're effectively legalized, they're not getting reported as crimes. And that appears to be a data point in their favor, but it's just a statistical illusion. And every other data point is going the other direction. And, and I guess one last point on this, you know, the, the lack of enforcement, especially in the post-George Floyd era, it even goes to things like um, speeding tickets and pulling people over for speeding. And there's been a statistically significant uh, rise in auto fatalities for African-Americans relative to the rest of the population because cops actually stopped uh, going after them as much in the wake of the George Floyd's uh, death. So we're just all across the board in every conceivable way you can imagine seeing a decline in enforcement. Uh, and the biggest victims are the people that progressives claim those policies will help. And you, you write about the fact he is the most dangerous. Uh, you you write about him being the most dangerous man in America. What? How do you think that's expressed? Well, it's just what you know. What are America's interests? What are our founding interests? What is what is it that makes these, this country great? And what is it that Soros funds? It is everything to the exact opposite. It is. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to articulate, but it is just every single thing he funds seems to have the goal of fracturing society. And, you know, we, we see it in promoting illegal immigration. I mean, we always we, we know that there are, you know, the costs of illegal immigration fiscally is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. But 
you know, if that were the only cost, you know, at, at least, you know, it's in the context of a $30 trillion economy. I mean, the, the, the other big cost is, A, you know, we can't keep track of them when it comes to crime and disease. Um, but then, uh, in my opinion, the, the biggest problem is it fractures society. If you have these clusters within our cities or wherever, where people don't speak the language, they don't know anything about our history, they have nothing in common culturally. Uh, and, and society is just sort of naturally fractured then. You know, people are far less likely to participate in their communities when they become diverse in that specific way. Um, they're more less likely to get to charity or, or even just do little niceties. So it is Soros is funding every possible thing that could break down society in that regard. Well, one of the things that he funds is Arabella, the, uh, the dark money group uh, connected as well to the 1630 fund to the, I mean, and the, and the web just goes from there as you talk about uh, in the man behind the curtain inside the secret network of George Soros, that is uh, the heart of the secret network. Let, let's turn to, to that issue. Tom uh, Perriello, for example, Going to the Obama White House, the Biden White House, uh, he has been, he should have frequent uh, visitor miles uh, for his visits to the Biden White House. Uh, his influence, his impact. Yeah, well, he's just one of many people. And, you know, this news broke recently, but there's been, it's been sort of a long time, or, you know, it's just the latest edition, I should say. Um, you know, in the book, I documented that even in the in the days following the presidential election, uh, when he set up his transition team, and you know you have one transition team for each government agency or department, uh, there were 17 people who worked for or headed those transition teams that were linked to Soros in some way, either working for a Soros-backed group or one that he founded. And then even you go into the White House, we have um, Antony Blinken, whose parents have worked with Soros. There's actually an archive at, a, at Central European University named after his parents. Uh, you have Ron Klain, the outgoing chief of staff, and you have Neera Tanden, uh, as well, you know, they're higher up. Um, they're, those two were connected through the Center for American Progress, which is also connected to the Clintons. But it is, you know, I, I can't prove these two things are linked. But a, a point I've sort of been making recently is it is interesting to see that Biden, who's obviously always been a man of the left, has pivoted so much further to the left in just the past five years, where I, I think he was to the right of Obama slightly. I mean, I, mean, I don't know how I'd prove that, but it, my, my impression was that he was slightly to the right of Obama, which isn't very right wing at all, um, but is now, I mean, whatever a fashionable progressive idea is to a 22 year old is something that Biden will adopt. Um, you know, even something like the, the trans, you know, someone like him adopting the sort of transgender platform would have been unthinkable five years ago. And I think it's and it's not just Soros, but it's he's clearly surrounded by people in his sphere and a lot of hyper progressives. And he seems to be sort of losing it mentally, to put it mildly. And uh, naturally speaking, they're going to have disproportionate influence on him. Um, the the you know, I think I said in the New York Post piece, you know, it's finally a White House he can control because. You know, he, he's been known to donate to, to our elections, whether it be tens of millions of Hillary Clinton um, or John Kerry. But for us, fortunately, he just kind of let that money on fire um, with Biden. He really does seem to be getting results. Um, and, and if if not even policy wise, he clearly is. Biden's ideology is clearly shifted far to the left. Uh, as far to the left as one could have right. farther left than anyone could have imagined uh, just years ago. And. The relationship with Obama, because Obama, it is generally felt, I believe, by uh, many pol politicos, uh, has a significant influence on this administration as well. What is the relationship between Obama, 
uh, and George Soros. So it was, uh, and I, I don't mean to, uh, I don't know if this portrays Obama in a sympathetic light or not. It, it could go either way. Uh, basically, Obama took a bunch of money from him and then uh, cut off contact with him. So that's sort of the, the short version. Obama, Soros has been in Obama's sphere, I think it was since 2004, back in his Senate days, had donated millions over the years. And I mean, to be fair, we only have Soros' account of this, but there was a New Yorker interview where he very much complains that he gave uh, Obama all this money and then was shut out. And I think he said, like, I had a phone call with Obama that I wanted to last three minutes, but it lasted, you know, I was able to stretch it to eight. Um, now, I, I don't mean to, you know, uh, portray Obama in a positive light as someone who got one over on Soros. Obviously, he still took the guy's money. Uh, I, I was mildly amused by the story. But of course, Soros or Obama is... His agenda is still in line with Soros. He's a man of the left, and uh, I can't think of particularly a good thing the guy has done. Uh, so that, that was sort of their relationship, or, or uh, there, Soros, maybe. I, I found the 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 vignette, if you will, fascinating because of what it did say, and it's the only the only uh, self-effacing uh, comment I recall ever reading. Uh, by George Soros, uh, and I and I thought it it was almost I've got to be careful here, but almost charming uh, that, for him to acknowledge that's, it. That's the thing, because basically what he's saying is, I tried to buy influence, and he said no, which <laughs> it, it's it's almost you know got to hand it to Obama, but from Obama's perspective, it's just I'm going to take a bunch of money and push liberal policies, even if it's not exactly what Soros wants. So it's not uh, that redeeming, although it is mildly amusing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And what isn't amusing uh, is the impact that he's had on uh, on prosecutors uh, in uh, with his NGOs and not for profits. Uh, the it, it really spells out. George Soros is a classic case that everyone should study, in my opinion, uh, in political science because it, it shows the the real danger of of what we have done in this country with not-for-profits, non-governmental organizations who have outsized power. And they are competing against government, uh, certainly local and state government, uh, and winning whenever they come up against them. Uh, they've also had significant impact on law itself, uh, whether it's uh, on, a, on the conservative side, it's United Citizens. Uh, a, without that nonprofit, there would have not been that uh, decision by, uh, in my opinion, the Supreme Court. These NGOs and uh, not uh, nonprofits are very dangerous uh, to this republic and our government, in, in my opinion. And they're they're especially um, toxic or dangerous in the third world because, you know, when there are countries that have unstable governments, the NGOs become the de facto government. They provide social services, education, etc. Um, and in countries like the Balkan countries, that was, you know, I, I've spoke to some politicians there and researching the book and, you know, I, I call it sort of the Pablo Escobar model where, you know, he was a famous drug lord, but also would curry favor by building schools and hospitals to mm -hmm. escape public opinion. Soros sort of does the same thing in poorer countries where, you know, from their perspective, if you're a poor person, the only thing you know about Soros is he's given me free stuff and no one else is. So they don't know all the, 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 the backstory. And the politicians there who can't provide for their citizens are at least grateful that someone's able to, f to fill the gap. So they're very susceptible to corruption uh, from Soros. So that's how he's able to buy uh, influence, especially in those countries. Though, as we've seen in America, it's, it's you know more through direct lobbying. But uh, he's I guess it's easier in those countries for him. 
How would you describe his politics? Uh, we know he's a Democrat. He's the largest donor uh, to the Democrat Party. But his his there's no articulation that I have been able to find of his philosophy, his ideology, uh, anything expansive uh, for, to understand better his his motivation in all of this, his societal and political motivation. So it's admittedly it's confusing to me because he describes it as being for what he calls an open society. Um, it's a concept from a philosopher called Kara Popper, who he studied under at the London School of Economics. Mm -hmm. And when you read what it purports to believe on paper about freedom and liberty, it appears to be libertarian, which clearly is not what he believes. So I don't know if it's a uh, window dressing or, or what, um, but he he views America and he has written that he views America as sort of the antithesis of one or, or at least needs great reforms. Meanwhile, his mentor, Karl Popper, said he believes America to be the embodiment of what an open society is. So even his mentor, who created this concept, seems to view our, our country as being exactly what he wants. Soros seems to interpret it differently. So I, I don't know what explains that gap if Soros is, is either mis misinterpreting it or misrepresenting it. Um, but I would just say it, it's hyper-progressivism. It is much like with Biden, whatever the, the fashionable views of a, of a college-aged progressive is pretty much what Soros is in line with, um, which is just very odd for some of, of his age in particular. Um, and one thing I noticed is when it comes to the type of propaganda he, he funds, if you were to go back in history and look at Soviet propaganda against America um, back in the 60s, 50s, um, it's very common to leftist propaganda today. So it's focusing on things like healthcare costing too much or being unfair that you have to pay for it, um, gun violence, and exaggerating racism. And state-funded outlets like Al Jazeera, which is by Qatar, today focus on those exact same issues to attack America. And, and clearly, the reason they focus on those issues is because they think you know, advertising those issues in America will fracture our society, will, will hurt us. They're not telling us these things to help us. Why do I bring that up? Because that's exactly the type of narratives that Soros is providing. And it, it is, again, it is, it is never with the, the purpose of... And here's what we need to do to get better. It's just to demonize the country and push it towards some sort of progressive idea. Yeah, it's it's almost uh, the work of an anarchist because it doesn't have uh, at its bedrock a philosophy and ideology that makes any sense at all. Right. Uh, the, all the closest I I think I come to understanding uh, the man's motivation uh, is he grows up uh, under Nazi totalitarianism. Uh, he is exposed to uh, Soviet uh, totalitarianism, uh, and he has made a choice. Uh, he chose the Soviet totalitarianism, communism. Uh, that's a, that is the inferred ideology because the evidence of what he supports, what he is, seems motivated uh, to create in this society is anti-American, it's anti-capitalist, uh, and here is one of the most successful capitalists in all the world. He's a man. He's a man of conflicts and some perversity. I think. I was going to say, you know, in the book, I point out that if you compare hedge fund returns, sort like in terms of what you know, what a dollar invested would be worth, you know, from inception would be worth today. I think he's second in world history after uh, Ray Dalio. So he's made a lot of money, but. The thing with Soros is there are the questions of how much of that is illegitimate. Um, there was only two insider trading cases I could link to him in the book, 
But, it, you know, and I should probably do a follow-up trying to dig into that because, uh, you know, I would imagine if we really dig through every single trade he's ever made, you could probably correlate it with politics. Maybe that'll be the next project uh, I work on. Well, there is a cynical uh, saw that goes behind every great for- fortune is a great crime. So <laughs> you could use that as your your working uh, starting point. Uh, the book is fascinating. Uh, you're uh, you're terrific. I enjoy talking Thank with you. you. I invite you back uh, anytime you want. We will. Excellent. Uh, we we love everything that you've uh, unearthed here about Thank Mr. You. Soros, and we'll remind you all. The book is "The Man Behind the Curtain: Inside the Secret Network of George Soros." Matt Palumbo, I recommend his book to you, The Man Behind the Curtain. Thanks, everybody, for being with us today. Tomorrow here on The Great America Show, we'll have one of the Republican Party's standouts and leaders in the House, Congressman Austin Scott. On the path forward for the Republican-led 118th Congress, the Biden investigation, and how long has Biden been taking classified material from Senate and vice presidential offices? Also this week, Cash Patel cash on biden in his new book government gangsters dr robert malone on why despite all of the science masks are still being mandated and how long will big pharma and the medical establishment ignore science and data we'll also be joined by wes allen alabama's secretary of state who has withdrawn alabama from the controversial voter registration database eric we'll have all of that and more this week congressman austin scott tomorrow Please be with us. Till then, God bless you, and God bless America.